Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In Season 5 of the podcast, we've been working our way through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' farewell sermon to the people of Israel. For Israel, the law functions as a boundary marker which delineates the faithful in-group from outsiders. Those who diligently keep the law will experience divine blessing in the promised land. However, if Israel failed to keep the law, they risk incurring divine wrath in the form of a mimetic crisis. As we continue reading from chapter 16 verse 1, we see various festivals which serve as ritual boundary markers delineate faithful Israel from outsiders who will experience God's judgment. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, and all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen within your territory for seven days, nor shall any flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God shall choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Notice Deuteronomy's attempt to unite Israel by performing the Passover at a central shrine. As we discussed in previous episodes, the Passover recreates the violent climax of the Exodus crisis in which Egypt's firstborn was slain to secure Israel's freedom. At twilight, a lamb is slain and its blood splattered upon the doorposts and lintels of the Israelite dwellings. This apotropaic blood rite wards off mimetic violence personified by the destroyer in the Exodus passage. The lamb's blood is substituted for the lives of the Israelites on the Passover evening. Deuteronomy casts the Passover as an opportunity to enter into and remember this pivotal event. As they imitate their ancestors' experience in the Exodus, the Israelites reflect upon a shared origin story which helps generate a common identity within the community. During the Passover festival, differences between community members dissolve as they all identify as God's faithful people whose ancestors were liberated from their Egyptian overlords. This sense of shared identity helps draw the community together over and against outsiders who are viewed as a threat. Reading on now from verse 9. You shall count seven weeks, begin to count seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. 
Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days, when you have entered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful." Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given to you. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert a bribe. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths celebrate the harvest provided by the Lord. Again, the people are united around a central shrine as they collectively give thanks to the Lord for his bountiful harvest. Each male imitates the previous offerer as they give thanks to the Lord for his blessings. This shared experience generates a spirit of gratitude and positivity within the community. To combat depression and anxiety, modern psychologists often recommend keeping a gratitude journal which lists all the things for which one can be grateful. Perhaps these ancient rituals play a similar role in a community that was largely illiterate, as a periodic expression of gratitude to the Lord helped cultivate contentment and peace. These feelings help dispel discontent and anguish, which might inspire a social revolt. By pacifying this instinct, Israel's Thanksgiving festivals help stifle mimetic rivalry within the community and maintain peace and order. In a similar vein, judges and officials facilitate peace and order within the community by ensuring justice is carried out for the poor and oppressed. Otherwise, these marginalised people may be inspired to rebel and overthrow the social order which has disenfranchised them. By these means, the law attempts to stifle mimetic rivalry so that Israel may enjoy God's blessing in the land of Canaan. Let's continue reading now from verse 21. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. 
You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told to you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring a decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right or another, or one kind of assault or another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you should be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do it. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest, who stands to minister there before the Lord your God, or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear, and not act presumptuously again. Here we come across this familiar Deuteronomic phrase, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, which you may recall signifies a communal scapegoating. Communities view their scapegoats as anathema, the very personification of evil which must be purged from their midst. According to this passage, anyone who engages in improper worship must be brought out to the city gates where the judges could determine one's guilt or innocence. There's also something symbolic about being brought out of the community and set apart from it before this person is executed as a scapegoat. The strict stance upon religious observance aims to unify the community around the official shrine and nothing unites people like a good old-fashioned scapegoating. Two or three original witnesses get the ball rolling as they hurl accusations and stones at the scapegoat. Notice one witness will not do, because the accusation needs to be contagious enough or imitatable so that the rest of the community can imitate the accusation and scapegoat the person. If there's only one witness, it shows that this is not going to stick and we can't kill someone on the basis of this accusation. Once the two or three witnesses have hurled their stones, the rest of the community then imitate their example one by one until they have invented their mimetic violence. Having purged the anathema from their midst, the people experience a transcendent peace 
of calm and unity. Having purified itself from the evil that once threatened to destroy it, the community become united around their own self-piety. Although we may be tempted to scoff at such a primitive impulse, we see this same process unfold every day on social media. One person will call out a potential scapegoat, followed by comments that spew venom in the direction of that person, as one by one, individuals imitate the accusation leveled in the original post. The virtual community band together against their scapegoat and hurl comments fueled by righteous indignation. The same mimetic process underlies our modern cancel culture, which scours the world for potential scapegoats to be expelled and purged from our midst. Of course, these scapegoats are cast as a threat to our modern world and are often portrayed as undermining certain core values such as inclusivity and equality. Once the community have unanimously decided upon their scapegoat's guilt, it casts itself as the righteous avenger who must exercise divine wrath by purging evil from their midst. Experiencing a renewed sense of peace and calm, the community congratulate themselves and revel in their self-proclaimed piety until another potential scapegoat rears their head and the cycle is repeated. No matter how evolved and righteous we may consider ourselves, the primitive impulse to purge the evil other from our midst still remains. Verse 8 addresses incidents of failed scapegoating. What should the community do when they cannot reach a consensus regarding the scapegoat's guilt or innocence? If the community cannot agree upon a common scapegoat, they will not be able to vent their mimetic violence which remains in circulation. Again, our modern culture wars between the conservative right and the liberal left illustrate this sort of situation. Rather than engaging in any sort of meaningful dialogue, these rival factions view one another as evil monsters which must be vanquished. To avoid a similar situation, Deuteronomy stipulates that the potential scapegoat must be examined by Levitical priests located at the central shrine. As the Lord's ministers, the priests carry divine authority, and for that reason, their decision is final. The community must respect and abide by their judgment. If anyone rejects the priest's divine directive, that person will become the scapegoat and be purged from the community. Again, this passage emphasizes that the central shrine represents the locus of Israel's legal and religious identity. The people must unite around this common structure to remain strong against their enemies. Reading on now from chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to require many horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. 
and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left hand, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." Deuteronomy recognizes that in time, the Israelites will end up imitating the people around them and desire a king, just like the other nations. With this in mind, Deuteronomy adds some stipulations about who this king is and how he must act. The Israelite king must be one of the community's own, chosen by God and a master over his own mimetic desire. The king must resist his desire to become like other rulers by amassing an extensive harem, silver and gold. We can imagine the newly appointed king becoming eager to establish his honour and identity among other leaders of the ancient Near East. This ambition inspires the Israelite king to look around at other monarchs and imitate them. To this end, the Israelite king sets about procuring gold and silver and heavily taxing his people and raiding neighbouring groups of people. During these raids, the best of the foreign women were given to the king for his harem and others stolen from Israel among his own brothers. Through this process, the Israelite king seeks to earn honour and establish respect among other ancient leaders and become a rival to them. To avoid this scenario, the Israelite king must resist the temptation to chase after mimetic idols, which will only lead to mimetic rivalry and violence. Unlike other ancient monarchs, the divinely appointed Israelite king has no need to acquire horses for his military, because he resists the temptation to serve the idols of mimetic desire. He denounces the temptation to engage in mimetic rivalry with ancient leaders and covet their land, which would inevitably lead to the ultimate expression of mimetic violence, war. In summary, the divinely appointed Israelite king resists the temptation to become like other ancient rulers, and in so doing, avoids conflict with other people groups. The idea that this king is divinely appointed gives him divine authority over the people. No one can question his degrees because he represents God. This dynamic sets him above and apart from the rest of the community as an example to be imitated. The king's identity as the people's brother also communicates an connection which may inspire the community's admiration as they attempt to imitate him. For this reason, the king cannot be a foreigner who would not inspire the same level of imitation and would, in any case, provide a poor example for the people to follow. In contrast to the Israel's foreign overlords, the divinely appointed king will inspire the people to imitate his positive example, which will unite the people around a common identity. Unlike most forms of imitation, which will inevitably lead to mimetic rivalry, the community imitate their beloved king without risk of mimetic crisis. 
The king's elevation above the rest of the community means they can never really engage him in any sort of meaningful rivalry because of the social and political distance between them. A citizen cannot just rise up one day and decide that they're going to be king. They, they just can't do that. Only the king is the king and no one else can challenge his position. Mimetic theorists call this type of imitation external mediation. Through this process, the God-ordained Israelite king who diligently studies and keeps the law presents a good example for the other Israelites to follow. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.